Hey, uh, welcome to And It's Writing, a live stream and podcast where two writers have a few drinks and some laughs while we revise our old work. Um, or today, I guess we're not revising so much as we are taking a look at. Um, I'm DC, and I am a speculative uh, fiction fantasy writer, um, currently querying. I'm with you guys. Uh, and um, I am <laughs> I am still reading the same book I was reading the last two sessions because it's a huge book and I'm slow and it's summer and I want to be outside. But I am reading um, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt and I'm this close to the end and I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. It has taught me a thing or two about pacing because uh, after writing an 180,000 word uh, fantasy novel as my debut first query, I uh, kind of went overkill and, and stopped knowing how to pace books because I started making them too short. So this is helping with that because uh, it's a big old book and it's starting to, it's refreshing my brain about what it looks like to write slow. And I think I needed that. What about you, Avery? I'm Avery. Uh, I write adult fantasy. Uh, I was complaining about being in revision hell and how terrible it is. Um, I am mashing together a couple of different drafts. It's a hot mess. It's ugly. It's not great. Um, but the book I'm reading, we'll hold it back up again, is called A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Murder in Ancient Rome. It's a nonfiction. Um, but the thing it's doing very, very well is actually voice. Uh, for a nonfiction, it's got a very nice, fun, casual voice, uh, which you kind of need when you're talking about a lot of murders. <laughs> um, but that's the title says it all that's what it's about um but yeah if you ever want to study like a nice way to do voice in nonfiction, that's or even in fiction that's actually a good good example you brought a book you like showed your book to the audience <laughs> and like i feel unprepared now like i feel attacked i Sorry. feel seen i feel i feel left out i quit <laughs> crap now i have to do this all on my own no, don't do that. Oh, please don't leave you me alone. Me. <laughs> you need me. I do please need you. <laughs> you. You complete me. Yes. <laughs> okay. And uh, I guess this is our usual reminder before we start the show that uh, writing is not all about rules. Uh, when we're writing, sometimes we need to take a break from them as well. We're both firm believers that if rules feel too suffocating or, or overwhelming, ignore them, just write and... And it just doesn't matter from there. <laughs> it really doesn't. Write what you love. Yes. Write what you love. Okay. Even and tonight's drinks are actually based on the scenes that we're going to be describing. So we each have a drink for our scene. So I'll go over mine. Um, I got real fancy with mine. Uh, my scene is very like decadent and a little sexy. Decadent. Um, <laughs> so I did a decadent drink. Look, it's got chocolate on top. Look at how decadent this is. It is a chocolate martini with chocolate liqueur, which I made myself, um, vodka, caramel, and then I made a smoked sea salt foam to go on top uh, using a, an ingredient called foam magic. Uh, I will be posting the recipe later, but if you don't want to get into the foams, you can also just do a sea salt rim. I just wanted to feel real fancy. You're freaking fancy. Wowie zowie. Awesome. Well, uh, you also designed my drink as well, uh, which is kind of based on the, uh, the piece that I'll be going over, which is frigid and cold and hopefully a little bit prettier than this. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you designed this to be 
made with a blue raspberry flavored vodka, uh, a, which is hopefully blue. I'm not gonna say brands. Uh, then we got simple syrup and lime juice and mint leaves, and they're all crushed up with some ice and well muddled, I guess is the correct term, right? And then I did the thing that you told me to do and I blended it all up in a blender and then instead of turning green, it turned, or instead of turning blue, it turned green. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. And, and now I added something to the top of it. I added, I wanted to add cream to the top so that it looked like snow. Um, and so that it'd be pretty with the two little mint leaves on top. But let me tell you, it is uh, it is very vastly de degraded since I first Oh no, it, it has mint, oh now no. Now it looks like real snow. Like when you're like in a parking lot of a Walmart and like the snow is all just kind of gross. I didn't think about the fact it's got lime juice in it. Yeah. So the cream, well, the cream has curdled. It's not actually curdled. It's just sort of, um, it has become one. <laughs> also, it's frozen because like it was cold. So now it's frozen cream. That's like chunks so it's like of cream. Well, like chunks of cream. This, okay, this is our lesson to like test these drinks before we do. Well, no, this is, this is the lesson here is the fact that I have I have drank in ruined versions of the first two drinks. In the first two episodes we did, I drank ruined versions of what you drank. So really, this is just fate for me. I'm supposed to drink the fucked up one. Like, that's what's supposed to happen here. I'm not supposed to have a pretty drink. One of these times, <laughs> you'll get the pretty drink. Mmm. Yummy. <laughs> Well, if the cream is all on top, then what, everything that's underneath is just like the normal slushy. There's just like weird. There ain't there ain't anything about this that is normal, honey. <laughs> well, to be <laughs> fair, that kind of fits like the book that the scene is from. In a it good sure does. Way. It sure does. See, we did this on purpose. Wow, it was all on purpose. Everything is intentional. Yes. Yes. That's that is actually another writing lesson is after it's all over just to go yes I meant to do all of that. We should make that uh yeah everything is intentional. We need to make that a uh we need to make that an episode stat. Anyway, <laughs> I guess that is a a good segue into what we're going to be doing today which is let me find my 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 outline you gave me here. <laughs> I can oh pick it up God, a little bit. I I'm a wreck already. That's okay. Um, today we're going to talk about setting a scene and like all of the things go into setting a scene and like continuing your setting through a scene. Um, so we have like a couple of discussion points, um, which includes, uh, for example, setting a scene and exposition, your thoughts. My thoughts on exposition? Yes. Well, <sighs> exposition is like that ex-lover with the giant penis that you can't be with anymore. <laughs> it's like so good to look at sometimes, but also it just drags everything down <laughs> real bad, like real bad. Like, and you're just like, I just can't. Yeah. I just don't, I'm not fine. Yeah. We gotta go. Like we gotta be done, I guess. Uh, exposition is necessary sometimes, sometimes. Uh, and I'm not, I'm going to be honest here. I'm not the best person to talk about this because like, no matter how much I learn about exposition and, you know, the describing, describing things as they are without, you know, trying to sort of move them into the action of what you're doing. 
That's a huge problem I have. And I ha I, I, I typically have to go back at least three or four times to, to fix it all. Um, and that's why I still don't have an agent. <laughs> I will say between the two of us, I'm the one who has the opposite problem. I'm the one who will go full Anne Rice and write like in my first drafts, a page and a half of like, here's what the house looks like. Let me describe the banisters. What type of wood are they made of? Let me tell you. And then I have to go back and be like, okay, a little, a little is enough. It's like this cocktail. It's very rich. A little goes a long way. Um, I may not need to go into every single detail about like what color the wallpaper is and stuff. Um, so I think between the and two of us, we strike like a good balance. Yeah. Cause I know when I'm baiting your stuff, sometimes you don't put in enough exposition and I'm like, where the fuck am I? Like what's happening? <laughs> but you usually fix that in like the later drafts and yeah. then we're all good. And some of that is a reaction so. to the fact that I used to really overdo the exposition and then I had some pretty rough beta reads and now I'm like a little gun shy. <laughs> So I'm I'm yeah. still seesawing and trying to find that balance. Uh, but that's what that is what betas and revisions are for. Balance is the hardest part. Yeah. So like our next bullet point was kind of you have exposition and then we have using the action to kind of anchor the setting with the character, which actually I think you do very well. I am not I'm I'm still struggling with that a little bit sometimes, but that's like one of your things that you always do very, very well. And so I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Uh, honestly, I think that, you know, people have told me that a lot actually. And like, I, I never like working on my action scenes. So they're like the less, they're like the least amount of editing, but I always get like compliments on them. And, and I think I'm going to be honest with you. I think what it is, is it's me reading a lot of Brandon Sanderson and just doing it naturally just from reading what he does. And so you know, I think that a, a good uh, a good tip for this is to read other people's stuff. And, you know, when you're looking at it, uh, if you want to, you can kind of even highlight in your head or on a post that like which parts are exposition, which parts aren't and how they're kind of helping each other. Um, I kind of pick up that stuff and leave it in my head. I don't really think so well out loud on a post-it note, but I know some people do. And I think that's probably a good way to do it. I think I've read it so much that I, it kind of happens to me naturally. And I, I, yeah, I still hate it when I do it because I feel like I can't make it prettier. But sometimes it's not supposed to be prettier. Um, and I think that's why I do get those compliments on my action stuff is because I do spend so much time reading action, especially in fantasy and it, and it helps definitely do it and, and, and make little mental markers of this. This is exposition. This isn't, this is the dialogue. How, how are these three things braided and working together? And why do I like it so much instead of just speed reading stuff? You know, you can do that all day long, but, but not here, you know? Yeah. And that's something we'll kind of go over also in our examples a little bit to kind of break down where we're using each of those elements of the exposition, the action, the dialogue. Um, and one of the other things is, uh, that people use a lot and i know i know i tend to go through like a checklist is the sensory details <laughs> so especially when i'm drafting and especially during NaNoWriMo when i'm like i need words <laughs> i'm like okay we're gonna walk into this room what do we see what do we hear what do we smell can you touch or taste anything depending on what the scene is those are a <clears> little <throat> harder um but the big thing is that everybody tends to default to visual so you'll have like 
a significant amount of visual details but one thing that can really help bring that setting to life is just like one good smell especially uh, because <laughs> its smell is so tied to emotion and memory and you know if you smell like a crackling fireplace like you smell that like burning logs you you have like an emotional response to that or if you smell something bad if you smell like you know someone's garbage that's gone for three days that gives you like a sense of a space too and that's one that i think a lot of people underutilize a lot um so that's one of my little <clears throat> tips and tricks is like what does the space smell like and you don't need to go into like three paragraphs of it just give me like one sentence tell us what the space smells like without using the word smell or like scent do it well, do it <laughs> do it well i i am very guilty of using <laughs> smell scent aroma odor <laughs> i like aroma i like aroma and to be honest i like scent too yeah. it's just it's, it's a good uh it's like a it's a good uh training exercise yeah. we're gonna see that in my example <laughs> I mean, I think I have a few. Yeah. I have a few too, and I think that's that's one of those important things too. Is it's it's seeing the balance, understanding why it's working, and being able to use those words, you know, even though they're technically bad. But I I've seen Donna Tart use the word smell. Okay, like she's not perfect. Well, and you can use you can use the word smell, and you can you I mean you can absolutely use it in whatever way you want. But the I way totally that a lot of people are saying it's like quote unquote bad is the way that we talked about in our previous episode callback um which is the like filter word of saying like she smelled bacon instead of saying like you know the aroma of bacon filled the air or something you know it's just it's that filtering whereas if you're just saying like the smell <laughs> of bacon hung in the air that's different than saying she smelled bacon is any of this yeah. making sense? Yeah, because yeah, you, you don't want to put that filter there. You want it to just be like a sensory element rather than what the character is doing. Right. That makes sense. And, and, and some will argue you can even push it further than that and say things like, you know, have her either think like, what the hell is that smell? Or like, mm -hmm. uh, just like she was reminded of breakfast, dumb shit like that. But again, it's a, it's a balance because sometimes you've already done that too much and you need to just write, she smelled bacon like sometimes you just yeah. need to write three fucking words okay like yeah you don't want to very important you don't want to like overdo <laughs> it trying to avoid a word no. <laughs> just because somebody no. has told you that specific word is bad because right. you know then you just look like an asshole yeah then you're just like working your way around it and it's just it's it's just awkward and weird and the reader knows what you're doing and you're just like mm, no. <laughs> the reader sees you the reader sees you and they, that's the thing the you, don't want, you. you don't want the reader to see you that is one of the few rules that i try to follow mostly is that i don't want the reader to see me the author either moving pieces around or like trying to outthink something um and honestly that can also depend on your book because some books like the the author is almost a narrator and that works but in my books it doesn't really <laughs> so like all yeah. rules it depends yeah i agree so sorry i got a little distracted here i've got like i'm sitting at like my oil painting desk and there's a leak somewhere it's fine <gasps> oh, no. everything is fine everything's oh, no. fine we're just gonna fine just drink your drink uh, yeah, I'm just kind of like, well, that, this is happening. Here we go. This is fine. Okay. Just going to have another sip. Okay. Well, on that, 
with that, we're going to move into our next segment, um, which is the reading. Um, normally, the way the segment goes is we'll have like a section of our old writing and we'll revise it live on camera. This one, we're kind of explaining how we do a thing. So we're going to each present a scene and kind of break it down, like down to its nuts and bolts and why we used the, the elements we did to set a scene. Um, mine is going to be a scene from my uh, debut self-published novel, Cambiare. Um, heads up. <laughs> it's slightly steamy. Not a lot, just a, just a hint, a touch. Uh, I'm also not particularly used to reading my own writing out loud, so we're going to hope I did real good makeup and I don't turn, like, the color of a tomato while reading this. I'm here for you. <laughs> so, um, okay. The room was dimly lit and a smoky haze hung in the air. The pungent smells of dozens of she mingled into one choking scent. There was no music, just a chorus of conversation and mumbles and moans that could have been either pain or pleasure. As our eyes focused, it became apparent this was not a ballroom. No dancing here. Cushions and settees and chaise, chaise lounges scattered the large room, and she had claimed them in writhing pairs or trios or more. Curtains hung here and there, though they framed the tableaus like sordid stage plays more than they offered any real privacy. It was debauchery. Sorrel took a step back, shaking her head as a mingling of horror and desire swirled in her gut. The fairy woman stood behind her, blocking the door. Come now. This time, a sinister shadow lingered in her smile. Don't you want to find your master? The chaise grin had grown cat-like, her teeth sharper. The fairy reached for her wrist, and Sorrel was forced to grab the woman's hand first. Sorrel tried not to look at the scattering of Fay throughout the room. Still, she caught glimpses. One she's pale hair spread on a crimson pillow. A woman ran sharp nails down his bare chest, her tongue caressing the bloody furrows left behind. On another sofa, a trio tangled together, a riot of jewel-toned skin. It felt like a bad dream, and Sorrel was growing lightheaded as the scratchy smoke filled her lungs. So, <laughs> we're going to break this down a little bit, um, which I'm going to go through each little section. This is why I've kind of broken them into the four paragraphs, which is actually how they break down in the book. But we're going to go through each little paragraph and explain kind of how I went through and tackled like each element of setting a scene. Note that it is only four paragraphs. This is on a printed novel, one page, maybe a little less. Um, and then after this, the reason I cut off here is because after this, we go into action. She, <clears throat> she, you know, she meets someone, starts going into dialogue. Um, so this is the only section here where we're setting this. And scene. as a reader, um, th mm -hmm. th this was a pretty big, I mean, this, this chapter was a pretty big deal. Like, and it, I think this, this small section that you give here, it, it, uh, it, it it's case in point that you don't need a, an entire, like, 2,000 words to describe a very important scene, right? Because this scene is actually very important in your book. And yes. I think that's very important to notice. So we start with this first paragraph, which says, the room was dimly lit, a smoky haze hung in the air, the pungent smells of dozens of she mingled into one choking scent. There was no music, just a chorus of conversation and mumbles and moans that could have been either pain or pleasure. <clears throat> this is me kind of going through the checklist of those senses that we talked about. So we have the sight, it's dimly lit, you can see the smoke, then we have the smell, the smells of the she, which in my book, um, some of the people in chat have read it, some have not, who are listening. Um, in my in my series, all oh, the fairies have a smell. It's very romance novel. It's very like <clears throat> they smelled like cedar wood and smoke and pine needles. Um, so they all have very distinctive smells. Um, then it says there was no music, just a chorus of conversations, mumbles and moans that could have been either pain or pleasure. So that's your sound. 
So we start off here with these like sensory notes. So we've got what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it smells like all in one, like just a few sentences. Then we have, as her eyes focused, it became apparent this was not a ballroom. No dancing here. Cushions and settees and chaise lounges scattered the large room. She had claimed them in writhing pairs or trios or more. Curtains hung here and there, though they framed the tableaus like sorted stage plays more than any, they offered any real privacy. This is just a, the physical description of the space. So here's what's over here. Here's what's over there. We've got <clears> some <throat> curtains. We've got some couches. It's like literally taking the dollhouse and putting the pieces there so people kind of get a visual of like the 3d space a little bit yeah and also i, I mm -hmm. hope you don't mind if i keep um stepping in just no, to go ahead. kind of uh elaborate on some of why this is working uh, especially that last sentence um curtains hung here and there though they framed the tableaus like sorted stage plays more than they offered any real privacy i think that sentence like this are very important because uh sentences like this are very important because they don't, um, they're not force feeding us description more than they are as like allowing us a taste of what the character sees, but letting us fill in the empty spaces. What does the author mean, you know, when they say more than they offered any real privacy, we all know what that means. We don't have to be um, blunt about it. We can let the reader sort of uh, take this fog and make a very beautiful picture out of it. And I think that's very important. And that's what kind of helps us stay away from just like normal exposition where it's just going on and on and on telling you everything that you need to feel. Um, but the reader here, no, nothing says, uh, you know, I, at least I don't think it doesn't say that they're nude, right? Um, but you kind no, of get the sense that they're nude. There right is away. a bare chest later, but that's There's a it. bare chest, yeah. Yeah, so like you kind of get, you as a reader, you can kind of make this stuff up for yourself. And I think that that's really cool and important. Okay, so the next sentence is, or next paragraph is, it was debauchery. Sorrel took a step back, shaking her head as a mingling of horror and desire swirled in her gut. The fairy woman stood behind her, blocking the door. Come now. This time a sinister shadow lingered in her smile. Don't you want to find your master? The she's grin had grown cat-like, her teeth sharper. The fairy reached for her wrist and Sorrel was forced to grasp the woman's hand first. Now this is kind of me breaking up that description with action so that we're like back in the main character's space. Uh, and then we're going to go back into a little bit more of exposition, but this kind of splits it up a little bit um, so that we're staying grounded in Sorel's head. Then the last one is um, Sorel tried not to look at the scattering of fade throughout the room. Still, she caught glimpses. One she's pale hair spread on a crimson pillow. A woman ran sharp nails down his bare chest. Her tongue caressing the bloody furrows left behind. On another sofa, a trio tangled together, a riot of jewel-toned skin. It felt like a bad dream, and Sarah was going lightheaded as the scratchy smoke filled her lungs. Now, the first part of this is very specific, <clears throat> small details that are meant to evoke an emotion. So, in this case, the main character has, like, walked into this completely unknowing, and is like, oh no what have i gotten into so it's like these very like kind of sorted details of like almost glimpses that she sees um rather than going into long details it's just like you know a glimpse of the hair a glimpse of the sharp nails um and these like very unsettling images but in like very we got a very like the cell kind of vibe here i don't know if anybody else has seen the movie the cell that's a bit of a a call out here uh a callback <laughs> Um, but it's this, these very like surreal, brief, unsettling images, um, rather than going into like a lot of detail. But the last sentence I kind of want to pull back to 
because it's Sorrel was growing lightheaded as the scratchy smoke filled her lungs. And that kind of leads actually very well into DC's se segment, which is the character interacting with the environment to give you a sense of setting as it mixes with the character. So she's breathing in this smoke. She's in the space and it's kind of the two together. Um, so that was kind of yeah. my thoughts there. So that was like, I, when I set a scene, I tend to kind of go through the same checklist. Like what are sensory details? Give the people the <clears throat> just technical details they need to know so they can visualize the space in their head. So they don't have like this white room, not knowing what's going on. So literally, like I said, there's a staircase over there. Um, and then making sure that the character remains in the space. So you're not doing just two pages of here's what the room looks like and you don't know where the character is in that room. And then I try to pick out very specific visuals. And sometimes in this case, since there's people filling the space, I can use the visuals of people. Sometimes it can be that very specific smell of bacon or something, just some very <laughs> sense. We're going to keep going back to bacon. Um, There's a very like vivid, small detail can ground people a lot better than like a whole paragraph of other detail if you pick like just the right one. I, I kind of want to relate it to when you're seven-year-old idiot, because we all were little idiots at one point in our <laughs> life. And um and you're making you, you find that you, you find that animal out in the woods that you know you know you're not morally supposed to pick up because that's mean to the animal. Don't do that. Um but then you make this little box for it, right? And you don't make the box all pretty because you're not going to put anything in it. You the, the thing that you think as a kid is like, I'm making this box, this little shoe box full of things that lizards don't actually need um, for my lizard. Who's going to live in it? And then you put the lizard in the box and you watch it do things, right? Um, and all too often I see this sort of, uh, a lot in, in a lot of the amateur betas that I read, it's it's very heavy on the um this kind of great box and then there's like no lizard in it and then i get like super bummed out um and i think uh what you do here is uh you're, you're showing a very good relationship between building the box really quick and then letting the character live in the box and as the character sort of explores the box um or the lizard explores some of the box you start to notice other things about the box like for instance maybe there's not enough uh, food in here for the lizard or water or maybe you obviously don't know anything about science because you know it's you're you're sort of discovering things along the way um about like the box because of what the lizard's doing um like oh shit i forgot to put a log in this box like and I'm not saying that as like a, you're correcting yourself, but like, you know, in somebody in Cyril's, uh, Sorrel's position, uh, for instance, they're thinking, oh my God, I shouldn't be here. Like, this is, this is all nude and it's kind of sexy. And like, I just, I feel a little out of place. Um, and I think that that's really important to pull into the box because then the reader becomes uncomfortable in the box and that's really important. So it's, it's very, I think, uh, noteworthy to set that scene up as fast as possible and then let the character live in the scene and let the scene continue setting itself up as little actions happen. Like for instance, this, you know, this woman who blocks the door and sort of, you know, stops her. So I think it's really important. I'm just going to say, I love this analogy of like building the box <laughs> and there's no lizard in the box. I'm like, that is the perfect description for, um, and honestly, I, we say, you know, we've beta read this book. I've read this published book. Um, 
yeah, where you're just like, I'm so, and okay, I'm going to call him out because he's been dead for several hundred years. Um, <laughs> but in, in Hunchback of Notre Dame, there's like, I swear to God, half a chapter. And it makes sense because it's about Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. But there is like mm-hmm. a half a chapter about what Notre Dame looks like. And we're all like, <laughs> we, we fucking know it's Notre Dame. Yeah. Like, we know what that window looks like. And so you're just like, oh, my God, where are the people? And I'm like, like I said, I get it. It's several hundred years old. But at the same time, I do love that book, by the way, um, which is why I'm calling it out. Uh, but, yeah, I remember reading it and being like, geez, there's so long of a description about just like in this window and that window and this doorway. And I'm like. If none of us had ever seen a picture of Notre Dame back in the whatever year it was published, um, this might have made sense. But now that we have Google, it's very annoying. So now that we have Google, don't spend an entire chapter on what a very well-known landmark looks looks like is where I'm going here. (laughs) There's a whole like weird digression, but... No, I liked it. I liked it because it's like there is a lifestyle of the people who lived 300 years ago. And that lifestyle was sitting around the house during the day uh, to, after they toiled. They would toil. They would wake up. They'd eat rotten meat. And then they'd toil some more. And then they'd, you know, drink some liquor from a boot or, you know, Bailey's, whatever. Uh, and uh, and then they would, they would get sick, uh, worry about their health, um, their stomach cancer, and then they would go to sleep uh and you know and hearing things there wasn't a lot that that happened like you know there was a lot that happened back then but it's not like today when it's like you get you get 50 emails a day and you go on vacation and you do your laundry and you go to work and you like you know you do all this shit all at the same time we are a people that has grown accustomed as a society to things happening so you have to let things happen because that's what we like um and we're not we're not dying of stomach cancer like all those people back in the 1400s were. So that's also yeah. my mild rant about like read the classics by all means, yeah. enjoy the classics, but also don't necessarily emulate the classics because what worked then doesn't always work now. So some people like are like, oh, this book is a great work of literature. I'm going to do the same thing, and you kind of can't. Like that time has come and gone. Um, so like you can learn things from them and you can pick up elements of them, but like this whole thing of like idolizing the classics, it's just like, there's also good stuff now that's more relevant now. So do both. Read everything. Yeah. And that's not saying we don't like purple prose because I do believe that Avery is the biggest Robin Hobb fan in the entire world. And she's gotten me into Robin Hobb as well. And like, she she can carry on, you know? Oh, no, you haven't read Jacqueline Carey yet, who I adore. (laughs) I love the Jacqueline Carey, Cushiel's Dart books. They're some of my favorites. They're some of my most influential books. I adore them beyond all reason, but they get real purple. And I I love it, but you're just, like, reading it and going, oh, uh, yeah. Someday I'll write the blog post comparing the opening chapter of Cushiel's Dart to the opening of My Immortal. Ugh. Wow, you sound like a total freaking nerd right now. Because they do. I'm talking about because they do. They share a lot of like the whole opening chapter of Cushiel's Dart is the main character talking about how pretty she is in like these really poetic terms 
of like my eyes are a color the poets once called bistra but now some would only call brown i'm not even kidding and i love it i eat it up so purple (laughs) purple prose has its place but it's all about like knowing your book and your audience and what your book is trying to do and in some cases you kind of want to like build that box real quick and get the lizard in it yeah. Some cases you do want to build a gilded box, but yeah. most of the time, probably not. You have to have a yeah. very specific book in order to do that. Yeah. And once you kind of figure out how to move action into a scene, you're like, oh, yeah, this is this feels so good right now. And you're like, you want to do it both at the same time. Like the moment that you start learning how to do both at the same time, like you're like, yeah, this feels really good. And you want to do <laughs> it. <laughs> Which is kind of what I do. Um, I was going to say, we've been going off on on a ramble. Let's go to yours. Um, So I'm going to scroll to your your document and then you can read yours. I hope I'm not going too slow for you, Avery. I'm just trying to pace myself. That's fine. (laughs) Okay, so um, just a little little segue into mine. Um, Yeah, so um, we actually got a request from somebody to kind of talk about, you know, putting action in a setting without losing the setting, without losing the scene, um, and just being able to implement that action very quick um, without losing any of the emotions, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I wrote a book uh, last year, um, an adult fairy tale, um, and just a little background behind the scenes so you guys kind of get this, um, because it's kind of in the middle of a scene, uh, since I actually went into dragging the action on here. Uh, The way this scene was set uh, was a very snowy, um, a cold snap in the middle of a in the middle of a world that is not so used to such uh, crippling cold, uh, and there is a fence that runs through this utopia and this dystopia. And one of the characters um, is is very much uh, a zealot, and and they don't believe in climbing the fence. They don't believe that you should get to the other side unless you've earned your rights of passage to get there. Um, so the character is in the scene. Um, about to give in to the cold um, and decide uh, that that maybe climbing the fence is is better. Um, but he doesn't necessarily believe that it can be done. So yeah, uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and read that. Uh, frustrated, Oswald kicked the wall and kept on down the dark alley, wincing against the snow gales. His toes and fingers stung; the tips of his ears had frozen. At the end of his will he considered turning back. The night was too cold and he could not safely make another mile. He went to turn around and almost missed it. Another section of wall where a thick vine of dormant wisteria crawled up along the surface, dressed in laced frost and uh, lazy icicles. Oswald reached up curiously and found surprising purchase on the old stock. With little trouble, he pulled himself off the ground and climbed several feet. Oswald inhaled, in the back of his throat froze. Only a fool would keep going. Yay, climbing the wall was a nasty little trick, but before there was time for him to think any wiser of it, Oswald ascended another step and another and another, far up the stalk. Triumph bloomed in his chest, warm and wonderful as Dulcie's hand. The windshield disappeared, suffocated by a rush of excitement. His blood flowed again, and the fence seemed smaller than ever. Beneath his wool muffler, Oswald smiled, warmed to the bone. Ice shattered beneath his hand as he climbed, clinking down to the street below. The mysterious twisted knots crawled up till they receded into a small hollow in the wall where footprints and the dusting of snow indicated Oswald had not been the only one to take this path into serenity. 
Down the way, the secret window continued into a narrow tunnel some three meters long, where on the other side opened a lookout point over the village serenity. Such a disturbing little shortcut indeed. That's mine. You're so um, good at this. I'm trying to get better. I'm still, I stuttered twice and I'm super emotional about messing up. Well, no, I, mean, I, 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 was, I was talking oh. about the, the, the reading. I was talking about the writing. Thought you were talking about the way I read it. No, I was talking about the writing and like the adding the scene and the character and world building and everything all at once. It's just it's so good. <laughs> Thank you. I I this this scene in particular I was very very proud of. Um but yeah, um you can I, I'm not gonna go through it paragraph by paragraph, but I'm probably gonna um just talk about little snippets, things that I did um that I do in all of my writing. Um Basically, I think this kind of goes back to something I said last week about having all of my sentences do two things. Um, I like them to uh, show a piece of the setting or, you know, reveal a little secret or teach the, the, re the reader something new, show them a physical action, show them an emotional reaction. I like them to do two different things. And I didn't skim through this to see if I had actually done it a year and a half ago when I wrote this, but I assume I got close. Um, now, the way that I keep the um, the setting going here, and you can see it pretty obviously, is I, you know, I use one sensory detail at least per paragraph, even though there's action taking place. Uh, for instance, uh, Oswald inhaled in the back of his throat froze. Uh, that reminds us it's frigid. That reminds us it's bitter. That puts us in the middle of a storm, and that's very important, um, especially in a scene like this where the storm is actually the reason that he is really trying to climb the wall because he's a very, he follows the rules. And um, so this is very important. Uh, so that th this sort of cold setting, this, uh, you know, um, let's, for instance, here, I say, triumph bloomed in his chest, warm and wonderful as Dulcie's hand. Dulcie is his partner. Uh, and I'm describing this sort of warmth he's feeling and it's it's working against the cold here. And, and while I'm not describing his emotions as excited, like right up front, um, you can feel he's excited because, you know, you as a reader can feel the frost melting away. Like you're you're feeling it as he climbs higher and higher, um, this sort of ignoring of his uh, numb fingers that I mentioned uh, and, and his continuing to go on um, despite it. It's, it's keeping the setting in and keeping the action in and also moving us forward uh, mm -hmm. at the same time that the story has not paused. And I think that's very important to do um, when you set the scene and you sort of did that in your last scene when you sort of added the dialogue and then you added her walking in. Um, you're not standing still in a book. You're, you're reading going forward. Um, and I don't know if you had anything specific you wanted to pull out of this and talk about Avery. I would love to hear it. I'm terrible at talking about my own work. <laughs> <laughs> I can yeah. talk about your work forever. Um, no, I did. It's it's the sensory details and the fact that the way that the sensory details deal. Like I said, it's 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 something you brought up already, which is the fact that you are very good at doing more than one thing at once. Which you already pulled out the one that was like a big one for me, which is the warm and wonderful as Dulcie's hand, because it's reminding us of like the world building. It's got character in there because it's his relationship with Dulcie. Um, it, but it's also a contrast to this sensory detail, but how you're doing 
like physical details. So you've got like the ice shatter beneath his hand as he climbed, clinking down to the sinking street below. Is that you've got the sound uh, of the clinking as well mm -hmm. as the, mm -hmm. the sensory feel of it beneath his hand. So you can kind of like feel that cold against your hand. Um, so it's these, it's that same thing of like pulling out specific details and it, it goes a little bit into once again call back to episode two um, which was the showing not telling is you're not saying it was cold you're saying i shattered beneath his hand so we know it's icy and we also know it's precarious because it's like breaking and falling um you get this very like visual action movie of like you know the ice falling down um so yeah, it's just, yeah. it's the fact that once again, that you're, you are very good at doing more than one thing at once. So we've got like the, the visual, but we also know why it matters to the character, which I think is actually a little bit in my scene. I didn't give a lot of background in my scene. So anybody who hasn't read the book doesn't under doesn't really know how that fits in, but it's actually like, it's a big moment where the main character realizes like how different the fairy world is from the world she came from. So it's this deep emotional moment for her of like i'm in over my head and yeah. that's what all of those things are saying is like this is so different from because she comes from essentially like a rococo france kind of marie antoinette court society where everything is very kind of prim and proper and she's not always prim and proper but the the society is and certainly not an orgy society yeah so she walks <laughs> into the scene where this is just like everybody's it's nat they, they're everybody's having a good time yeah they're treating this as like natural she like walks into you know like a a 60s porno party and it's like oh this is i'm i don't belong here <laughs> in a very yeah. and in like a very sinister way too in the fact that there is like kind of an undercurrent of violence to it too and so it's very much her feeling overwhelmed and so it's the emotional impact of being in this setting. It's how that setting affects the person. And so in your case with Oswald here, it's also the same thing where it's he's it's how he's feeling this like triumphant and he's like conquering these feelings and it's it's a, a peak for him emotionally as well. So I think it's it's the lizard in the box. You want to know, you want to see the lizard exploring that box. And, you know, when the lizard finds his little log and he's very happy about the log, you, you want to you want that emotional yeah. impact of the setting um, because the character is your conduit for everything in the book. Um, yep. The character is your conduit for why the plot matters, why the setting matters, why everything matters is how your character feels about the thing and why it affects them. And, and it's yeah. definitely important to, it, it is definitely important and, and it should be the first thing on your mind when you, you peel open that new chapter in that new section, you, you need to know where your character's head is at. So at the beginning mm -hmm. of Avery's, uh, you have a character who's very freaking uncomfortable. Like she just walked into an orgy, like Avery knew going in that <clears throat> Sorrel was going to be sick to her stomach over this. Like this is, this is, this is new for her. And so that is what you want to feel when you walk into the scene. And we do. Um, 
a lot of times I'll beta read something where the, you know, this, the description and the action is just beautiful. And I'm like, wow, like, holy crap, like, good job. But where are these emotions? And, and that's what makes us take that lizard, you know, that's, that's what makes us put the lizard in the box and look at the lizard, see that the lizard's uncomfortable. And then we have a reaction, right? As the, as the child who put this creature there, we start to be like, oh, this uh, this lizard is hungry and mad, and and we start panicking. We start panicking because we're very attached to like those things around us. And we see that lizard, and we're like, we gotta put more sticks in. Stat, like, holy shit! Like, but, and, cricket, and, give me a cricket. Shit, somebody help! Like, um, and that's what you want your reader to feel. You wanna, you know, I want someone to to read Oz like in this cold and, and, and see him break this law and either go, yeah, buddy, keep breaking the law or like, shit, dude, turn the fuck around because what are you doing? Like you want that uh, emotional reaction and you're never gonna get that without seeing the lizard scared to death first. So we need to feel that. And um, so a lot of what you see Avery and I doing here is giving the reader something to react to um, themselves. Because if you can't react to the character and the lizard in the box, you're not gonna feed the lizard, you're not gonna care, you're gonna walk away and you're gonna put the book down and never pick it back up. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. So that and, is why I think these things are important. <laughs> yeah, and this is another just quick note that this, you know, this draft that I read is obviously the finished published version of the novel. That is not what the scene looked like when I drafted it. Um, I probably had four times as much detail when I drafted. <laughs> can we just, can we just take a minute to talk about how terrible these drafts were before we put them Oh back God. Uh, yeah. So here's the deal. If you're like thinking about all this stuff and it seems really overwhelming, you're like, but I don't know how to set the scene when I'm writing my book and I, you know, I can't think about all these things when I'm drafting. And that's true. I don't think about all of them when I'm drafting either. I think about them when I'm revising because when I'm drafting, I'm just, especially when I'm doing like a very first draft, it's just like, and the room was red and <laughs> there was a couch over here and it was a very pretty couch. And let me describe the couch and the damask fabric that the couch was made out of. And then later I'm just like, oh, I don't need any of that. But when I'm drafting, if it helps me to visualize yeah. the space, I write it down and then just go, yep. I can cut that later. Um, yep. Because yep. some of these drafts were, I mean, the first draft of Cambiare, uh, what? nobody's read the first draft. Um, some people read early <laughs> drafts and it was twice as long and most of it didn't need to be there. Um, but I had to write it to get the story out of my head. So we talk about all this craft stuff, but if it's, we, as we mentioned at the beginning, if it's keeping you from drafting your novel, don't worry about it. Our drafts are terrible. When oh my gosh. Oh, Infinite Wishes. This is from my, my book, Infinite Wishes of Oswald. Sorry, this book was so, like, I, I think there was probably, like, I think... Oswald wasn't even spelled the same. It was like, it was complete. Actually, I think I wrote the old way. There's I noticed like there's, there's, a, yeah, there's yeah, one S in that. here. I didn't say anything yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, you know, things, things can change. Uh, and I think that that point you said about like 
being the writer, sometimes we need to overwrite the scene to get into it because I can't, for instance, write a book that I think is ugly. So, so I'll, I'll spend forever writing myself a first chapter to set my scene, to get me into the book. And then I'll keep you know, writing, but don't make the mistake of leaving all that good stuff that you wrote for you in the book, because not, you know, a lot of times the reader's not going to want that. Um, or in my case, um, you're a freaking stupid ass and you take it all out and you don't save all that beautiful description you put in and then you get your beta readers being back to you like why isn't there more like I want to know more like some of these scenes aren't set as well and I'm like ah right I took stuff out because I was worried and you know that's where you're your own worst enemy sometimes leave it <laughs> that is sometimes one of the it. like ugly growing pains of writing is that you're likely to either be in your early drafts of books, an underwriter or an overwriter, and then your beta readers will come back to you and be like, you're X, like I need more or I need less. And then for a little while, you're gonna go way too far the other way. And then your beta readers are gonna come back and go, too much. Yep. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, that, you know, okay, no, over here, no, over here, no, okay, somewhere in the middle. And I'm still finding that balance in my early drafts. I, nobody's ever, ever going to write a first early draft that's perfect. If you ever see somebody on Twitter or Facebook or wherever who's like, oh, I write the first draft and it's fine and I just do a quick copy edit and then I publish it and it's great. It's not great. I'm sorry. I mean, it's, I mean, it's great if, like, if you don't, you know, care to you know everyone has their own thing and i'm not you know it's we are sensitive to that we are um but we also know what it's like to send out uh hundreds and hundreds of queries and get lots and lots of rejections and be very sad about those rejections yeah. so if you are one of those people who likes to only draft once uh bully for you just know that it's gonna be very scary in the, in the querying trenches um yeah. avery and i are very sensitive to to that because we also we have a friend who likes just doing a first draft and you know and she just, you know, she's she thinks that maybe querying is not for her. And and I think that that's fine. That's true. Like, that's, that's true. Fine. It does depend on what you want to do with your book. Yeah. Um, because if you're writing for mostly you and friends um, or, you know, if you just want to self-publish and you want to just or, if you want to do because there is a lot there are genres where like self-publishing and doing um, rapid release is very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lucrative and just, it's a very good idea. And like how a sexy fan fiction. Yeah, and, and a lot of those genres <laughs> are genres where people go in with very specific expectations of very specific tropes. And if you know those expectations and you know those tropes and you know, this is what my readers are here for, you probably can turn out a draft with like minor revisions and call it a day especially if you are experienced a lot of it has to do with your level of experience too um mm -hmm. it's just like any other field you know if you're if you're a carpenter building your first table it's probably not going to be a perfect table on the first try but if you're a carpenter building your hundredth table you can probably build a pretty good table pretty quick without a lot of like tweaking because you got the system down um so there are people who do like consistently rapid release historical romances every few months they publish a book they've got their system down they don't need a whole lot of revision 
I just want to say that there is something really great about reading an unedited sex scene, especially when you really want to read sex and that person just puts all of the love into it. And you're just like, you know what? You do. You, I love it. That's true. All the like super just, gratuitous just details. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, there, there is there is a place for that. But like if. I just want to say there's also a place for revision and like being open to revision is kind of where I'm going with this. Just going, oh, I don't need revisions is also a dangerous place to be in until you get to yeah. a certain level in your career. Um, or if you're Anne Rice, you just decide you don't need revisions anyway and everybody goes with it anyway. That's right. Because Anne Rice can do what she wants. Yeah. She's like, mm, book three? <clears throat> Editors? What are those? I don't need them. And then everybody's just oh. like, whatever, Lestat wants to fly into the sun? Go for it! Let Lestat fly into the fucking sun, darling. Just go for it. Have at it. So once again, knowing your market and knowing your your audience and your <laughs> like, I love the image of Lestat flying. And it's like, the thing where everything depends. There is really a place for everything. Sweet man. Goodbye. <laughs> there really is. Goodbye. I swear, some of that stuff is like the most bananas fan fiction, and it is amazing. It is great. So it's it's like I said, there's a place for everything. There's an audience for everything. It's great. Um, but I think you should be open to revision and to just taking a look at your stuff and deciding if you want it to be, just if you want it to be the way long, it is. Yeah. A long, hard look yeah. at your life. And sometimes you will take a long, hard look at your work and go, no, <laughs> I like this the way it is. And sometimes yep. you will have CPs and betas that come back to you and say, I don't like this. And you go, too bad <laughs> i don't care <laughs> we have both done this to each other there have been yep. times we sure have where dc has been like mm, i don't like this and i'm like oh yeah we blow each other off all the time we're super good yeah, at i'm it. like it's staying <laughs> in anyway i'm sorry yeah, it's um, awesome. <laughs> but then there are but the, yeah like you said you want to take a look at everything um and the whole long weird i've had some drinks path here was to say that if <laughs> if it's not perfect on the first try that's fine and don't worry about all of these when you're doing your initial draft this is all stuff to think about in revision later um eventually you'll start to absorb the things that are important to you and you will incorporate them into your early drafts uh some of them it depends. Uh, some of them will, you will always struggle with. Uh, but it's all about just for if you're still in the early drafting stages, getting that book on the page, hell or high water, whatever it takes. If that takes writing four pages of description to get your setting in, in place, do it. If it takes one sentence of going, uh, they're in the castle now, and then going into dialogue, then that's what it takes for you. Um, the first, the point of the first draft is to get A to Z on the page. And then later you can think about all this stuff. Exactly. Are there any questions? Yes, I think we're at the questions part. I've been rambling for a while and we're starting- You're fine, you didn't ramble. Yeah. You we're starting to hit our hour. So please ask us questions and we'll, we'll talk. I can ramble some more. Those of you who are on the video stream can see my my beautiful oh no my coaster's sticking to the bottom of it my beautiful pineapple while we're waiting to see Aww. if anybody has any questions 
Uh, I finished my martini, and this is my like backup drink. <laughs> so I have a mustache tattooed on my finger. <laughs> I happen to know that the person who requested this topic is in the chat. So please let us know if we like completely missed the mark and you have future questions or further questions. Um, or if you have any other things to ask anyone. Silence means that we were absolutely perfect we're and stunning. Brilliant. They love our lizard yeah. analogy. The lizard is perfect. They, they love it. They love everything. We didn't have any pizza. This there were time, no pizzas. But, but I like the lizard. Yeah. I really love the lizard in a box analogy. I think it's a great description. Well, of... maybe it will come back. Maybe it'll come back. It's just, it's one of the things that comes up a lot for me is that characters are the reason we read. And so, like, any element of writing needs to come back to character in some way. Yes, yes. someone in our chat loves the lizard box too. I know that. Thank you. Cool. Okay, well, well I'll take those no questions. So. so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, and our next episode is going to be July 9th. And the discussion is going to be on finding critique partners or beta readers, um, which is probably great since we talked about them a lot today. Yeah. Um, so you guys can join us at 7.30 uh, p.m. Eastern time or check out the audio version afterward. We post it just about anywhere. Yes. And uh, before I go into the last little bit, we did have a comment saying that uh, someone oh. says, I need to sit down and write and not care that the detail churned out in certain areas is tiny and flesh it out later. The concept of the lizard box is really intuitive and not something I would have thought of. Yes. <laughs> if detail is not something that comes naturally to you, don't worry about it. Mm. Add it in later. Um, yeah. It's fine. You can so throw glad. that in as much as you want later. Um, so, yep. yeah. Um, I'm very glad. Yes. Uh, yeah, you can find everything you need about the podcast at anditswriting.com with the word A-N-D, not the ampersand. Um, look us up on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere you listen, most podcatcher apps will have us. Um, if you did enjoy this episode, uh, we would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. That's one of the places that the algorithm really looks for reviews and it does help other people find us. Um, there's also a subscription box on the website at on the main page at the very bottom if you want to subscribe for future updates or reminders of upcoming episode live stream times so thank you so much and thank you guys so so much for coming tell your friends yes please we appreciate <laughs> it thank you very much bye guys have a good uh have a good weekend bye